On today's episode, we have a special interview with Dr. Scott Engel, Senior Vice President for Agriculture and Natural Resources at UF IFAS. We are going to hear all about his Central Florida tour of IFAS research and extension programs. And we'll get a little taste of what UF IFAS is doing to help solve the natural resources challenges of tomorrow. Welcome to Naturally Florida, a podcast about Florida's natural areas and the wild things that live here. I'm Lara Milligan. And I'm Shannon Carnavali. This podcast is brought to you by UF IFAS Extension in Polk and Pinellas Counties. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We are here with Dr. Scott Engel. He is the Senior Vice President for Agriculture and Natural Resources for University of Florida IFAS. And he is in Central Florida going on a little tour of some of the research and extension work going on in our part of the state. And so, Dr. Engel, we were wondering if we could start with asking, how has your tour been? Well, thanks. I'm glad for the opportunity to meet with the two of you. I've been on a what will be a three-day road trip of the area um, between Orlando and Tampa, learning more about the work that IFAS is involved in. So seen some very traditional agricultural projects. I've seen some natural research projects. I was on Lake Toho um, earlier this morning looking at the snail kite. And just now I was at a uh, citrus grove that is being grown under protective cover to learn more about that relatively new technology. Oh, that's fascinating. The protective cover, is that the screening over many, many acres? Correct. That is screening that is over. Often I learned today that they call them pods. It's about a 10-acre pod. And what it does is prevent uh, invasives, whether it's a disease or, or insect, from getting into the, uh, the protected area. So the uh, manager of the grove can use fewer materials, pesticides in particular, uh, not worry as much about uh, citrus greening or HLB. And the trees actually grow quite a bit faster. So it's a I don't know if it's maybe niche is too defining for that technology, but it is certainly something that's going to be important for the uh, future of the Florida citrus industry. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, I've seen these cups projects up close and they are very impressive. I just love seeing all the innovation that comes out of our research centers. And I'm so glad that citrus is starting to have some hope in that regard, because I think as Floridians, we can all get behind that. One thing, like Shannon and I have a very localized perspective, being county agents and working at the county level, and we know that all Floridians benefit both from our ag lands and our natural lands. We try and touch on that as much as we can in our podcast episodes, but how do you really see IFAS bridging the divide um, between, between these two major areas of ag and natural resources? Yeah, that's a great question because there's no way you can separate natural resources, the environment, from agriculture, they are intertwined at many different levels. Agriculture can have a negative impact on our natural resources. It can have a positive impact on mm -hmm. our natural resources. Obviously, that's a goal to make sure that uh, farmers that are growing, whether it's a plant or animal species, uh, does not just have a neutral impact on the environment or natural resources, but actually can have a positive impact on our natural resources. There are lots of examples of that um, farmland, if properly managed, can actually enhance the number of um, animal species on that land. So 
it is science and it's technology and farmers sometimes have to do things a little differently to right. do that. But it is possible if they pay attention to the need for natural resource protection and, and sometimes even enhancement. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of our ranch lands here in Polk County and across Central and South Florida provide wonderful habitat for a lot of wildlife species, including many endangered species. Now, in some of our past episodes, we've talked about the water quality question from an urban perspective. And we were wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about water quality from a ag perspective. Yeah, uh, it's very complicated, first of all. Agriculture can have a negative impact on water quality, and there are examples here in Florida of that happening, uh, particularly from a historical perspective. But more recently, we've been using AgLane actually to clean up water and make sure that water as it moves downstream or even into our bays and tidal areas is cleaner than um, what it was leaving a field. So there's it, it's complicated, uh, <laughs> but it takes a lot of management. I'll, I'll give you one quick example. Yes, um, please. One of the major concerns in Florida is that for some of our springs and lakes, uh, it is enriched with nutrients, mm -hmm. nitrogen and phosphorus in particular. Nitrogen and phosphorus, of course, comes from everyday living, from septic tanks. And if you fertilize your lawn, that can be a part of it. But some of it also comes from agriculture. And so while we can't control everything, um, I think agriculture has a responsibility for assuring that the loss of nutrients from farmland into bodies of water is minimized as much as possible. Now, we still need farmland. I've been around, I've been in public meetings, particularly in metro areas, where they tell me the, the solution is let's just get rid of agriculture. Well, that, that doesn't work very well when we all need to eat on a regular basis. So we are going to have agriculture, but there is a responsibility to try to reduce the loss of nutrients from farmland into water. And as you just suggested a minute ago, it's even now possible through appropriate management to actually clean up water that might be contaminated with nutrients. And so that when it leaves that farmland, it can even be cleaner than when it went into the farm. So there are a lot of ways we can do that. You can run it through um, fields of dense vegetation, swamps, um, marshes. They all can have a very positive impact. And we're still learning how we can manage these technologies that will improve water quality and how they integrate with agriculture. But it's turning out that there are a lot of opportunities for agriculture. Number one, no longer to be a source of nutrients in water and degrade water quality. Uh, number two, to have kind of a net balance, no in, no out. But now we're learning it can actually be a very positive for cleaning up water quality. So agriculture can, the water that leaves farming can be sometimes cleaner than the water that moved onto that farm. Which is fantastic news for all of our riverine ecosystems, our lakes, and our marine ecosystems at the coast, right? So these are all ecosystems that our listeners care a lot about. From what we can tell, our listeners here at Naturally Florida are residents and visitors who care a lot about the beautiful spaces we have in Florida. But they're everyday people. They're not research scientists. So as the VP of Ag and Natural Resources at the University of Florida, if there was one thing you could tell them about what IFAS is doing to make their lives better, what would it be? 
Yeah, sometimes we can get a little geeky and talking about <laughs> science and too much in the weeds, literally and figuratively. But there are some more examples that are uh, quite a bit uh, obvious to everyone. Probably the main example that everyone thinks about, everyone is concerned about, would be protection of manatees mm-hmm. within our um, streams and estuarine areas. Uh, manatees are challenged um, in, from a number of different perspectives. But here are some of the things we're doing in IFAS to protect the, the manatee population. First of all, uh, under IFAS, we have the vet, the, the vet school of the University of Florida. And so when a manatee is injured, we will often dispatch veterinarians uh, along with their students to both care for the manatee, but also uh, teach students how to care for wildlife at the same time. Uh, Manatees live among the grasses that grow on the bottom of our rivers and streams. Uh, That's where they forage. That's where a lot of their food is found. Uh, Some of the some of those we call called submerged aquatic vegetation, but basically mm-hmm. grasses that live underwater. Uh, they are challenged. Um, we've lost a lot of those grasses, and so IFAS is looking for ways that we can reestablish grasses growing on the bottom of our streams and rivers, so that the habitat for the manatee will be enhanced. And lastly, uh, particularly through a lot of our marine and aquatic programs, we're working with boaters to. Just teach them how not to run over manatees, right. um, to how where they are found, how to avoid them. Um, there's a lot of technique that boaters can follow that will protect the the health and the the lives of manatees. And so we have a very large extension education program to help boaters understand the risks that are associated with manatees. That is awesome. It actually reminds me. I just recently met Vicki Gambell with Florida Sea Grant. She is also working with boaters doing outreach and education about um, specific to the Clean Vessel Act, but how boaters can basically lessen their contribution to water quality issues. And it's is amazing. And personally, that's one thing that I really love in Extension is our connection with our clientele, you know, whether that is boat owners or septic tank owners, you know, we really can help everyone in some way, shape or form. And sometimes our work actually focuses on helping unique clientele like our wildlife species. And I actually understand that you just this morning got to see firsthand some of the work that IFAS researchers are doing on the endangered snail kite. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? I I was impressed by what I saw today, the snail kite, which I'm not a birder, by the way. And so (laughs) I am am probably all of your listeners know more about this than I do. But I I came today to learn more about the snail kite and some of the challenges that it is facing. Uh, these are limited populations. Uh, these are birds that feed almost exclusively on snails. And so uh, they have more restrictions and how they live and where, where they can live uh, than a lot of other bird species do. Uh, so it is a, it's an um, endangered species within our area. Uh, populations are relatively low, but we have several scientists. I was with Rob Fletcher today, Dr. Rob Fletcher, who works for IFAS in our wildlife and ecology um, section. And uh, he's studying ways that we can both protect the snail kite and enhance its uh, range and number within uh, these uh, areas where the snail kite could live. So there are a lot of things that we can do. Probably protecting habitat would be one of the most important but just understanding the lives of snail kites, where do they nest? How do they nest? What are 
um, what attracts them, what discourages them from moving into an area. He's got a world-class program and has learned an awful lot about the snail kite. And so we can then use those that information that he has developed to enhance the habitat so that hopefully we can encourage um, more snow kites moving into this area and more reproduction and more birds uh, overall. It's a, it is a fascinating species that has a very unique niche. And I think um, if we were to lose that species from our area, it'd be a real loss for our ecosystem. Yeah, I agree. Between the two of us, Lara is the birder though. So Lara, could you describe the snail kite for our listeners just in case they haven't seen one? Yeah, sure. So if you've never seen a snail kite, they're a medium-sized raptor. They're either slate gray if it's a male or brown if they're female. Then they have pretty distinct coloration throughout. So their eyes are red, their legs are kind of a reddish orange, and then their bill is kind of more of a yellowish orange. But you really want to hone in on that bill because it's very, very curved. It's exclusively designed for excavating those apple snails. Like you said, Dr. Engel, they're you know specialists, so that is like their main food source. So you really, really want to look for that. But um, yeah, and you guys can you know look it up. We'll link some stuff in the show notes if you want to find out more. One of the things I was really impressed by today, in addition to learning more about the, the kind of the life cycle of the snail kite, I also learned that it's a big part of the economy. Uh, mm-hmm. While we were out on the lake, several airboats came by, each with 10 or 20 people in them. And I was told that these are people from all over the world who have come into this area to just see a snail kite. They've, they've read about them. They know about their endangered status. And birders, as you know, one of the one of the important uh, things in the birding community is to be able to check off that you have seen yes. that bird. And so it's in a part of our economy, too. It's not just the ecology and it's not just part of our natural resource. It's part of our business economy for bringing people here. Of course, we need to make sure that they don't be the tourists don't become a burden and actually discourage these populations. But when properly handled and managed, uh, they can bring money into the economy and raise awareness of the snail kite and the, the uh, need to protect them. Yeah, that's a good point. And we do usually try and incorporate some type of call to action for our listeners. So that would be a good one talking about protection of snail kites and their habitat. So they are considered endangered at the federal level and we're currently in their active nesting season. It's usually like February through July. They can nest year round, but uh, we really want to stay at least 500 feet away from any active nest site because they're so well studied. Most of these nest sites are going to be marked with signage to tell you that. Um, but we also know because they're so well researched that they are really prone to having like failed nests if they are disturbed in any way. So we just want to do our part. And if we are curious and want to go see them, that we just do so from a nice, safe and respectful distance. Yeah, that's a great point, Lara. Thanks for bringing up a call to action. So back to the data that you were just discussing, Dr. Engel, it sounds like Dr. Fletcher's immense amount of data presents a lot of opportunity for future research. Can you spend a minute going into some of the innovative ways IFAS is looking to work with these humongous data sets? Yes, tremendous amounts of data are being collected by Dr. Fletcher with the snail kite, other species he studies, uh, but also in, uh, other areas of natural resources. And it almost gets to the point where it becomes unmanageable. There's so much information, there's so much data that no human can wrap their brain around all of that data to actually turn that into actionable management um, needs. And so how do we do that? The University of Florida has recently invested in what I think probably will be 
the most important way of addressing this, um, the, the data that we are collecting now in such large quantities. Uh, and that's through the process of artificial intelligence. The university is, we're hiring lots of new faculty, including in the area of natural resource management. We have one of the fastest AI supercomputers anywhere in the world. And so we are literally right now building a program that will allow artificial intelligence to begin to sift through this data in a way that no human can do. Mm -hmm. Sift through the data and find patterns within that data that will then inform us about how we can manage the snail kite or, or submerged aquatic vegetation or manatees or any other natural resource issue. It could even be how will we, for instance, sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it up in soil and uh, begin to deal with climate change. Uh, the ability of artificial intelligence now to unlock the human mind or the constraints of the human mind and really open it up to things that we're not capable of understanding. The AI supercomputer will be able to do that for us. And that's going to move us um, dramatically ahead in our ability to manage natural resources. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. The advances in technology and all that the researchers and scientists can do, it just it always amazes me. So thank you for sharing some of that insight. And I think that's actually a really good way to wrap up our interview with you today. Just kind of highlighting the future and IFAS and really all worlds of research in agriculture and natural resources. And so we just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to come and sit and be on our podcast um, with me and Shannon. And we look forward to hearing more fun stuff coming out of IFAS in the future. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to meet the two of you and appreciate the opportunity to join you. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Engel. And thank you to everyone listening today to this special interview with University of Florida Senior Vice President of Agriculture and Natural Resources, Dr. Scott Engel. Don't forget to check out the show notes today where we will put a bevy of resources in case you're interested in learning more. Thanks for listening to Naturally Florida, a podcast about Florida's natural areas and the wild things that live here. Stay updated on new episodes by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend. Naturally Florida is produced by your hosts, Shannon Carnavali and Lara Milligan. If you have questions or suggestions, submit them online at naturallyfloridapodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Extension, an equal opportunity institution. Thank you for listening.